Hi, I'm Stuart Barry. Thank you for joining us at The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws upon the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders, one topic at a time. Ramses II, or more commonly known as Ramses the Great, was the third ruler of the 19th dynasty and is often regarded as the greatest, most celebrated and most powerful pharaoh of the New Kingdom, which itself was the most powerful period of ancient Egypt. For the very early part of his reign, he focused on building cities, temples and monuments, and then led successful campaigns into the Levant and Nubia. Upon his death, he was buried in a tomb in the Valley of the Kings, and his body was discovered by archaeologists in 1881. Ramses' mummy is now on display at the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization. To tell us about this amazing ruler, we're joined today by Dr. Bill Manley. Bill is an expert on hieroglyphic texts and is well known for devising popular forms of access to learning about pharaonic Egypt. He holds a PhD from University College London and taught the ancient Egyptian and Coptic languages for more than 30 years at the Universities of London, Glasgow and Liverpool, and spent five years as Senior Curator for Ancient Egypt at National Museum Scotland. Bill has written about ancient philosophy and culture, early Christian life in Egypt, and the history of Egyptology for scholarly publications and encyclopedias. And his popular books on pharaonic language and art have been translated into more than 20 languages. Thanks for joining us today, Bill. So who was Ramses II and where does he fit in history? Well, it's my pleasure to be here, Stuart. Thank you. Ramses II was uh, a king of uh, Egypt. We don't know actual dates for ancient Egyptian history, specific dates, but the conventional dates, which we would give him, bring him to the throne around about 1279 BC, and he reigned for 67 years, which is uh, an exceptionally long reign, probably the second longest reign. So it's the 13th century BC, and it's during a period that we call the Egyptian New Kingdom, when Egypt was, we could call an imperial power, probably at the height of its wealth and its influence culturally, politically, economically in the world, possibly at any point in its history. So at that point itself, Pharaonic civilization is over 2000 years old, I guess. But this is the, the, the high point. Egypt's role in the world is, is the, the highest point, the, the world that we understand. So when we think about the influence of Egypt in ancient history and the Bible and so on, this is the moment when Egypt really stands at its, uh, at its zenith. And Ramesses II is king at that really crucial moment in Egyptian history. So, Bill, when you talk about the New Kingdom, can you give us a bit of a broad brushstroke of the whole history of ancient Egypt? Like, where does the New Kingdom fit into the whole story? So the Egyptian New Kingdom is just one of the, the broad periods that uh, modern historians have, have created to talk about Egyptian history. The earliest pharaohs take us back to about 3000 BC. The end of pharaonic civilization is actually with the Roman Empire more than 3000 years later. It's really when the Romans take charge of Egypt that they completely eliminate the apparatus of pharaonic belief, pharaonic control and so on. So we have more than 3000 years of uh, history to explain. And within that, there are crucial periods lasting many centuries when Egypt is a single unified country. A land along the River Nile from Aswan in the far south to the Mediterranean Sea in the far north based on a strong agricultural economy with a palace at the top. By palace, I mean the king and the people around him rather than a particular building. And so over the course of those 3,000 years, we, we see pretty much the same political system in place, the same religious beliefs with the, the king at the centre of those as well. The king is, is almost the high priest of the country, leading the country in worship even more than a political leader. 
And across those 3,000 years, we see variation and change, and we see some periods where the system begins to uh, to, to wobble, to break down, and so on. So we divide those 3,000 years up into long sections. The Old Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, and the New Kingdom are the earliest of these uh, periods. The Old Kingdom is really the, the whole of the third millennium BC, really. The Middle Kingdom is the first half of the second millennium, sort of 2000 to 1600 BC. And then from 1500 down to 1000 BC, talking in very broad terms, of course, that's the Egyptian New Kingdom. And of course, at the end of the New Kingdom, we've still got a thousand more years of pharaonic history to get through. In each of these kingdoms, Egypt is, is a unified nation. There is one language effectively being spoken through the, the, the whole country, which brings people together. And, and the Nile is not just the basis of Egyptian agriculture. It also provides a highway running throughout the, the whole country because almost all Egyptian communities are near um, the River Nile because with very little rainfall in the country, to be too far away from the Nile means that you're just in the Sahara Desert, in effect, and, and certain communities uh, can't really be established there. The river, the language, create this unified nation, and we have these key moments, many centuries, where the, the political system, the cultural system is just ticking over nicely. And the New Kingdom is the most distinctive and arguably the, the most culturally and politically most powerful of these moments. Why is Ramses himself so important? How did he become known as Ramses the Great? Well, the first thing, of course, is timing. Timing is everything. And so Ramesses becomes king at this moment when Egypt, during the New Kingdom, is the richest, most powerful nation in the world that it knows. A distinctive feature of the, the Egyptian New Kingdom is that at the beginning of the, the period, the Egyptian rulers had brought the lands immediately south of Egypt on the Nile directly under their control in a war which lasted nearly 100 years. They brought the Nubian lands of Wawat and Kush, which take us to modern Sudan. They brought them under their direct control. So physically, the country is larger at this time than it ever has been, it extends much farther south than it ever had done previously. But also what they've done is brought the gold fields of uh, the Nubian desert under their control. So they have direct control over these gold fields, which instantly makes Egypt the, the richest country in, in the world that it knows. And for 200 years before Ramesses comes to the throne, this has been the situation. And Egypt established itself as a powerful commercial nation over the first 200 years of the New Kingdom. So Ramesses comes to the throne at a moment when we can benefit from this. When people travel around Egypt, they're often going to see the incredible temples of places like Karnak or Abu Simbel, which, by the way, is in Nubia. These are colossal temples. And what we see is that many of them were built by Ramesses II as a direct expression of this extraordinary wealth and power. So he's important in terms of just the physical remains of Egypt. He's king at a time when pharaohs can do so much. But there's another aspect to his reign, um, which we can talk about maybe. Um, the Battle of Kadesh is symptomatic of the fact that for the first time in the New Kingdom, for the first time in, in uh, many decades anyway, there is a rival power emerging. So Ramesses comes to the throne at a moment when Egypt is very powerful, but is also confronted with uh, a genuine threat to this, this power and authority. So on the one hand, he, he benefits from, from Egyptian wealth, and this is expressed through the incredible temples and, and other remains, which are very often identified specifically with Ramesses II. You know, through the hundreds of pharaohs that were in Egypt through history, Ramesses II has left the biggest footprint of them. 
But then in terms of the actual nature of his reign itself, he's involved in some of the more dramatic political events of the Egyptian New Kingdom. So who was this rising power to compete with Egypt and the Battle of Kadesh? Why is it so important? Well, the rising powers is the kingdom of Hatti, the Hittite Empire in Turkey. What we see in the decades, 50, 60 years before the reign of Ramesses II, is that there's a shift. There was a settled world order, if you like, for well over a century from when Egypt emerged in the New Kingdom as this powerful nation with the wealth of Nubian gold. The Egyptians are able to maintain a preeminent presence in a world order which is organized around the presence of other powerful kings in places like Assyria and Babylon, which are modern Syria and uh, Iraq. The kingdom of Mutani, which is in the north of modern Syria towards Kurdistan. And these kings are allies, diplomatic friends of the Egyptian pharaohs. They organize alliances, diplomatic alliances, which are built around the exchange of gifts. And of course, Ramesses and the other New Kingdom pharaohs have the, the greatest gift of all. They've got these gold mines that they can use to their advantage. We also see that they give their daughters and so on to one another in marriage to cement these diplomatic friendships. So at the moment that Ramesses becomes king, there had been seven of these uh, great kings in the eastern Mediterranean that we know about through quite detailed diplomatic sources. For a long time, this had been maintained as a stable world order. But with the, the rise of King in Hatti in, in central Turkey, a king called Supli Yuma I, what we see is the Hittite ruler becomes quite expansionist and aggressive. Two of the kings who were friends of the new kingdom pharaohs, the kings of uh, Mutani and also Azawa, which is in the west of Turkey, these are removed uh, by the, the Hittites. And once the, the Hittites get themselves involved in Syrian politics, they begin to emerge in the eastern Mediterranean more generally. And at that point, they're beginning to impose upon Egyptian interests. They're not threatening Egypt directly, but they're threatening some of the, the powerful city-states in the areas of modern Lebanon, uh, Israel and Palestine. They're threatening the city-states there who do business with Egypt, who are responsible for moving caravan goods from far distant places to and from Egypt. And just basically this uh, stable economic world order that uh, the pharaohs have been used to for, for 100 years comes under threat from this expansionism. And we see that the, uh, the king of the, the Hittites has his eyes on certain places, certain city-states like the port of Byblos, and the great commercial centre of Kadesh, which are really important in this, this economic world. Battle of Kadesh then, was that Ramses II trying to reassert control to squash the Hittites or vice versa? That's exactly what it was. It was Ramses II taking control of the situation. And it was very early in his reign. Uh, as I mentioned before, you can characterise Ramesses II on the one hand as being a beneficiary of all that gone before in the New Kingdom. So he inherits a powerful throne. He has a position of pharaoh at a time when this is the, you know, the, the most prestigious position uh, one could have in, in the known world. And yet at the same time, he inherits this difficult situation. And the problem is that the, the threat to the Egyptians is not near Egypt itself, but uh, it is in the area of modern Lebanon, effectively. So at a distance from them. The Hittite armies are surrounding places like Kadesh and, and Byblos, I mentioned before. They're putting pressure on these places and, of course, getting the rulers of those countries to come over, to become more friendly, as it were, with the Hittite rulers. And 
because there's this distance from Egypt, the Egyptian armies find themselves in situations where they, they're constantly active in these areas and then they withdraw and whatever successes they achieve are, are lost. And this is a situation which had been going on for half a century before Ramesses becomes king. Now, it's possibly because Ramesses became king and also because Ramesses was uh, almost certainly very young. We're not quite sure exactly how old he would have been because the sources tell us very little about an Egyptian pharaoh before he actually becomes a pharaoh. But what evidence we have would suggest that Ramesses was maybe in his uh, early to mid-teens when he became king. So maybe that was a time for his enemies to strike as well and and, uh, step up their activities. And Possibly what they're, they're not intent on conquering Egyptian territory as such, but they're intent on curbing Egyptian influence in the world and establish themselves on an equal authority, as it were, to have the same economic, commercial, political power that the Egyptian king does. So what we see then is that Ramesses, even as a young king, responds to that with military force. And in year four and five of his reign, when he might not even have been 20 years old, he's leading his armies far distant from from Egypt, having to travel uh, by sea to get to these places through the the friendly port of Byblos. And one of the things we also see in all of this is that he leads the armies himself, that he's at the head of these armies, and he goes into battle with other people from his family present, including young sons who are present uh, at the battles as well. So it's a moment when he inherits the throne as the most powerful man in the known world, and yet at the same time has to put himself at physical risk to deal with the uh, the situation that he's presented with. But he decides on decisive action. And of course, we don't know, because it's the nature of, of pharaonic culture, we do not know whether this is just him, he is dictating the terms, or whether, you know, as a, as a younger king, he has an advisory council which puts him into these situations. But nonetheless, that's the situation which is placed upon him early in his reign, and he is required to lead the armies into battle. And at the Battle of Kadesh, things went very badly in year five. So what we actually see is the Egyptians and the Hittites fight out a stalemate. They're just too far distant from Egypt for the Egyptians to be able to impose their will, but the Hittites are not militarily powerful enough to deal with Egypt uh, head on. So what happens is over the the next decade, we see a shift in tactics. And in in 15 years after the Battle of Kadesh, what we see is the signing of the first recorded peace treaty in the world. You know, so we see see a moment that, that the world can learn from the military action is superseded by an agreement between these uh, two powers, that they acknowledge each other, that they respect each other's uh, positions in the world, and they agree on a a new world order, as it were, uh, between these two superpowers, which then holds for for another 100 years. It only comes to an end when the Hittite empire falls apart for internal reasons. So Ramesses' early reign is characterized by military intervention, and then the the rest of his reign from year 20 onwards is characterized by this reassertion of Egyptian authority in a world in which he's dealt with the other power facing him, what we might call mature and sensible political way. And so the rest of the reign of Ramesses II reverts to uh, what he might have anticipated on becoming king, which is to say that he is the king of Egypt, he is powerful, and there are no threats to his regime, to his uh, authority. Is it true that he really had 120 children? This, this figure gets bandied about, and in fact, 170 children is is what. Uh, oh. <laughs> and the answer is we don't know for sure. But the, what you have to do is first of all count the children who appear on his temples and monuments, 
And because he reigned for 67 years, he had a long time to father children. If you just count the, the, the princes and princesses who appear on his monuments, then you come up with a figure of at least 80. I think over 40 of them are sons. But these things are problematic. Some of these figures maybe are counting the same person twice. In some instances, what we may have are children in festival processions who are bringing their own children because, of course, he lived so long that he's got grandchildren uh, and great-grandchildren, no doubt, uh, in, in his reign. And that was to cause problems later, to be frankly. So it may be that we're counting some grandchildren as uh, children and so on. But certainly, yeah, he, he's, he's got uh, a very large family to provide for. Part of this, though, goes back to the point I mentioned before. He lives in a world in which one of the ways in which uh, the, the Egyptian pharaoh is able to cement political alliances is to marry the daughters of, of other rulers. Although ancient Egypt was a strictly monogamous society that uh, people would only have one husband or wife, although there was divorce, divorce was quite common at that time. So you get serial monogamy. The king lived in a different status. It was part of the, the both of the, the belief systems surrounded the king of Egypt and the, the political system that surrounded the king of Egypt, that he had to uh, marry multiple wives. And he lived such a long time that if you think about all of the times we're reinvigorating these uh, political alliances, then it's not surprising he had many wives in the for many children what what his relationship with with many of them was like is you know speculative at best but the the records on the temples are of festival processions in which, which daddy is the king and all of these children are present you know so there were times when this enormous family apparently was gathered together i've heard you describe in one of your lectures you described this the nation as an african kingdom rather than near eastern why specifically have you said that that's just a question of perspective but yeah, I was as a, as a student. I was I was raised on the idea that we talk about Near Eastern history, and you know, one of the things during my working lifetime has been to be becoming more aware of the the fact that these these are loaded terms. And when we talk about Near Eastern history, it's almost as if the Near East has gone away. We now have the Middle East, and Egypt is part of the the Middle East, as it were. But geographically, Egypt is in Africa. And that's an important thing to say. And, and in the modern world, a lot of uh, there's lots of discourse, lots of debate around the, the Africanness of, of Egypt itself. So I think it's important to acknowledge that just as a simple geographical fact, relating to the modern world, at least, that uh, Egypt is, is in Africa. But that, that reference also was uh, in the lecture was to the Battle of Kadesh. And one of the things which is quite striking in the Battle of Kadesh is that because Egypt is, as it were, an imperial power, when the the Egyptian army arrives at uh, Kadesh, Ramesses' army arrives uh, at the Battle of Kadesh, it is not just an Egyptian army. There's an army of many nations, and most of those nations are also African nations. Communities and, and uh, areas associated with the modern um, Sudan and Libya, which are the African nations which immediately surround Egypt as well. So the, the Africanness that I'm talking about there, contrasting with the Hittite army, which is in modern terms made up of people from Turkey, from Syria, from Iraq and from Lebanon. The, the Africanness I'm talking about there is, is just the idea that New Kingdom Egypt was bigger than traditional Egypt in pharaonic times. And also modern Egypt. So modern Egypt has a different character. The Arab Republic of Egypt is the latest iteration in this long, long history of Egypt through 5,000 years. But it has its own distinctive character. New Kingdom Egypt had its own distinctive character. And part of that was that its tentacles spread so far and wide within Africa. So in a, just a geographical sense, it was a much larger nation than today or at any 
period in its history and the, the, the lands which were actually the extra land, as it were, which was part of Egypt at that time, was all African land, Libya uh, and Sudan and so on. As I say, they had these profound relationships with other kingdoms and also with city-states in the Near East, like Kadesh and Byblos, I mentioned before, and other important places. These were relationships, but there is a vast kingdom in northeast Africa, which is uh, New Kingdom Egypt. So just in a geographical sense, just to get across the idea that very distinctively African entity with, at the Battle of Kadesh, a very distinctively African army. You also touched on, I was a pick up on it, about the available sources that tell us about Rand. What, what are the sources? How do we know so much about him or so little about him? Well, we know a lot about him and, and, and very little about him at the same time. So you're entirely right. It is a question of sources. The, the point is that Egypt is an amazing place to visit. And the pharaonic remains of Egypt are extraordinary things to see. And, you know, everybody in the world, I'm sure, is, is aware of all of the remains from the pyramids, which were already old when Ramesses was king, through to the extraordinary temples at, at Luxor, the Karnak Temple and the Ramesseum itself, which is a more true temple of Ramesses II. We mentioned Abu Simbel before. All of these monumental remains are tangible, physical evidence of the presence of Ramesses II as king. So our principal sources of evidence are actually these temples. That's to say they are religious monuments. We have to understand that we know a lot about the way in which Ramesses wanted to present himself in a certain context as the, as the god king, the pharaoh of Egypt. And this is not just him. Of course, this is what matters to his fellow countrymen as well. We also have his tomb. We have the communal tomb for his sons, which is quite an extraordinary thing for the burial of over 50 of his uh, sons in the Valley of the Kings and so on. So we know about his death in that sense. The tomb of his principal wife, Nefertari, is one of the, the great glories of Egypt. It's so beautifully painted and so well preserved and restored in, in modern times. So we have all of this kind of evidence, but we get... Almost nothing beyond that that relates to the rest of his life. So even when we're talking about the Battle of Kadesh, we're piecing together the information from the way it's presented to us in his temples in a particular context. To take a case in point there, the, the treaty that was signed with the Hittites early in his third decade as king, it so happens that we have a Hittite copy of that uh, treaty, which was found in a palace archive in the Hittite capital at Hattusa. So we've got the document, as it were, the official document with the treaty on it. The Egyptian version also su survives, and it was erected as a 13-foot-high wall in the temple of Karnak by Ramesses II, because what he's talking about there is the sort of the relationship between himself and the gods, which has led to this kind of divinely inspired peace. The Battle of Kadesh was important to Ramesses II because he was nearly killed, and he credited the fact that he was under divine protection for the fact that he didn't die that day. So even when we're looking at his account of the Battle of Kadesh or his peace treaty with the Hittites and so on, really what we're looking at is, is the way it's expressed through his religious faith in the temples. But what his actual thought on the, the battle may be or what he did for the rest of his reign, to be frank, we know very little about that. But as he built temples later in his reign, by and large, what he's recording are the kinds of things you would find in an Egyptian temple. So other military campaigns and also ceremonies and festivals, which he took part in. I mentioned before that we know about his children because we see them depicted in images of festival processions in temples. But where the children lived, whether they spent time with their father, what Ramesses II did 
for most of his working day and so on. This, this, most of this information is, is lost to us. It's, it's a peculiar thing. The pharaonic Egypt really is known to us through their temples and their tombs. Extraordinarily beautiful things to visit and see. But beyond that, there's very, so very, very little we can actually say about the, the nature of Ramesses himself. We, you know, it would be wrong in, in my mind to try and say what kind of person he was, for example, because we know nothing about him personally in that sense. Everything is presented to us through the uh, through the prism of the religious uh, monuments. After he died, what was his legacy or what carried on after him? If that was the peak, the highlight of the Egyptian New Kingdom, what happened after him? As you can imagine, like any ruler, his, his legacy is complicated, but there are two obvious ways of talking about his legacy. One very positive and one much more problematic. The positive legacy, as I say, is that he came to the throne when Egypt was immensely powerful, but under threat, and he dealt with that threat. So he restored Egypt's position. And for, as I said earlier, for the next century, Egypt maintains a stable position until the Hittite Empire falls apart itself. And at that point, Egypt has no great rival in its immediate vicinity. There are there are other world powers, places like Assyria, but they don't impinge directly on Egypt's world. So the, these are just people the, the Egyptian pharaoh can do business with in order to port goods from uh, like lapis lazuli from Afghanistan. You know, they can come through places like Assyria as uh, an intermediary. So Egypt at the death of Ramesses II, for, for decades afterwards, is stable, powerful, secure. So in that sense, he leaves behind a nation that has benefited immensely from his, his rule. However, in terms of the dynasty itself, there's a big problem. He, he reigned for 67 years, and therefore he outlived many of his children. So he was actually succeeded by his 13th son, Merimptah. Now that's all straightforward in pharaonic terms. The eldest surviving son takes over the dynasty. But when Merimtah died, he didn't have a child to leave it behind. Merimtah was probably very old in Egyptian terms when he became king. If he had children, they predeceased him as well. Or there maybe is a, a child of Merimtah who didn't last very long. The, the, things start to become uh, complicated with the death of Merimtah. So although when Ramesses died, there is no issue, there is an issue down the line, because when his male line comes to an end, either with Madame Ptah or Madame Ptah's short-lived successor, there is a real problem as to who should be next. So we, we see that there is actually a problem with the dynasty itself, which might have led to political violence uh, at that time as well. And the 19th dynasty which is the dynasty of Ramesses himself, essentially the 19th dynasty, is the reign of uh, Ramesses II. That dynasty comes to an end, probably not to be replaced by another family. The, the next uh, line of kings are all called Ramesses, apart from the, the very first king is, is a king called Sefnacht. And after that, we have a long line of kings all called Ramesses, which is probably a clue that they're from the family of Ramesses II. But their direct relationship with Ramesses II is really problematic. And as I say, they probably came to power on the back of some political violence and certainly on the back of a political dispute. So in many ways, the, the most problematic legacy of, of Ramesses II is the fact that he just lived too long. There were problems stored up, not for when he died, but for later on. There must have just been so many people with a claim to the Egyptian throne that uh, even the, the, the wisest old heads uh, in the palace community couldn't actually work out exactly which person was the next pharaoh when the male line came to an end. 
Where is he now? Is he still in the Valley of the Kings? So his tomb is in the Valley of the Kings. Tomb of his sons is there. The the tomb of his principal wife, Nefertari, is in the Valley of the Queens, which is very nearby. This is all in Luxor in the far south of Egypt. All the records of his burial are present. But actually, at the end of the Egyptian New Kingdom, broad terms, we can just say 1000 BC, the Valley of the Kings was actually closed as a, a royal cemetery and a new cemetery was started probably by people in the direct line of descent from Ramesses II. But for for political reasons, as much as anything, the the Royal Cemetery was moved to the north of the country. So this is over 200 years after Ramesses II died. At that point, the the bodies of the kings in in the Valley of the Kings were transferred to one central tomb where they were held. Actually, over a period of uh, several decades, probably, they they were moved around. So the, the body of Ramesses II was placed in a storage place, we might call it, with his father, um, King Seti I, with other important rulers. And that hiding place was famously discovered by locals in the late 1870s. And eventually the authorities in Cairo became aware of the fact. And these bodies were then uh, removed to Cairo in, at the end of the 19th century. And so his body's there in Cairo to this day. Some people might have watched the end of lockdown, I think. It was the extraordinary procession of royal bodies from the Egyptian Museum to their their new home, which I think is the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization in in Cairo. So Ramesses II's body is there. It's, as far as I'm aware, it's on public display as well, which is, you know, one of those matters which people can debate the, uh, the, the, the ethics of. But his body is is still with us, uh, remarkably enough, which, of course, is a testament to the the ancient Egyptian practice of drying out and wrapping up bodies, what we call mummification. He's in Cairo with his his father and some of the other great pharaohs of Egypt. It makes you think of Shelley's famous poem, Ozymandias, which talks about the the idea of this vast power that a great oriental despot can have and how it just passes with time. Um, look upon my works, ye mighty and, and despair, the famous last line of poem Ozymandias. Well, actually, the, the poem Ozymandias, the name Ozymandias, is is a version taken from Greek of the throne name of Ramesses II. So in, in a sense, he actually does embody what, what Shelley was talking about there, these extraordinary beautiful remains of his temples and his, his tomb in the Valley of the Kings and so on, which is just as I say, magnificent places to visit, but his desiccated mortal remains are just there on on public display in Cairo. That's, uh, of course, how human existence can pass. Bill, thank you so very much for joining today. I know you're about to head off down to Egypt today. um? I am, yes. yes. So I wish you safe travels and hope you have a great time and we look forward to catch up with you soon. Thank you. It's my pleasure, Stuart. Thank you for joining us at The Thinking Traveller. Brought to you by Academy Travel, a leader in small group cultural tours. Visit our website at academytravel.com.au to access blog articles or join our online program of lectures and short courses brought to you by experts around the world.